the last few minutes there of the first movement from Beethoven's Piano Concerto Number no. 5, Opus 73, The Well-Known Emperor, as performed by Nina Schumann, with the University of Cape Town Symphony Orchestra conducted by Alex Fockens in this live performance recorded in the Baxter Hall on the 7th of April 2011. If you've just joined us here on Fine Music Radio, a warm welcome to everyone who has tuned in for tonight's special edition of Great Interpreters, including those listeners not only in the mother city and surrounds, but also from other parts of South Africa and abroad. I know we've got listeners listening via the internet tonight from the US, the UK, Germany, and even Israel. My name is Adrian Fuchs, and what a program I have in store for you tonight. A profile on South African pianist Nina Schumann. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome here on Fine Music Radio this evening, Nina Schumann, someone that I'm very fortunate to know, not only as a piano lecturer, but also as a close friend and former colleague. Nina, welcome to Fine Music Radio. Thank you, Audrey. You've just concluded the ninth and very successful Stellenbosch International Chamber Music Festival. Have you managed to catch up on some sleep? Uh, yes, indeed I did, and also some cooking, homemade cooking, as opposed <laughs> to eating steak every night, often, post-concert. Had enough of fast food for the week. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, it's certainly not an understatement to say that music has always been an inseparable part of who you are. You grew up, the youngest of five daughters, in a home filled with music, and together with your sisters performed in a musical troupe that toured to various towns across South Africa. I read in an interview somewhere that your mother used to say that you and your sisters didn't practice because you had to, but because practicing is fun. And I wanted to ask you, as a youngster, were you ever under any sort of pressure to follow a career in music, or was it something that just followed organically from, from your music early music career? Well, I don't think that I was pressured um, as such. Uh, my mother kept a, a really tight ship, uh, which you, you can't blame her with five daughters. I think it, it must have been pretty difficult to keep everything under control. So we all had schedules in terms of when we needed to practice. But I think more um, instigation for me was uh, I had the example of my sisters, and in particular my second sister, Ilse, who was quite successful as a pianist. And... You know, you set goals for yourself as a little girl. And I remember when she was 13, she played the Kapolevsky Youth Concerto with the then Cape Town Orchestra. And I loved the fact that she got a big dress and she got flowers sent to her. And, you know, so my, so my big goal was one day at the age of 13 at least to play a concerto with an orchestra. You had your first um, performance with an orchestra at the age of 15. And today you have, as far as I know, more than 140 concerted performances with orchestras in South Africa, Germany, Portugal, Scotland, Armenia, and the US to your credit, and about 40 concertos in your repertoire, which is a staggering number. I've always loved playing concerti. It's, part of it is the bling and the glamour and you know the whole thing, but I, also because I, I felt I had an insatiable appetite for learning concerti. Um, I would... Again, I would put certain goals for myself. And I remember in my first year, someone dared me and said, can you learn Rachmaninoff 2 in two days? And, and I said, <laughs> I will. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I've, I've always put certain goals uh, towards the total number of concerti that I wanted to learn within a year uh, as such. Mm-hmm. Whereas with a solo recital, just time-wise, it's slightly different. Mm-hmm. It, it, it sounds completely strange, but um, it's it's just something that I've enjoyed in mm. terms of an achievement and also playing off an orchestra of such a large body and also playing off the conductor. At the age of 12, you started piano lessons with Lamar Krausen a pianist who the New York Times referred to as one of the finest chamber musicians of his time. Lamar, of course, was a remarkable musician, a pianist and a teacher who taught 
In addition to yourself, many of South Africa's foremost pianists, including uh, Stephen de Groot and Neil Immelman. And I read recently that he once wrote, records get deleted, critiques crumble, but good students like children and grandchildren perpetuate. He must have been exceptionally proud of you and your achievements. You know, the the odd thing is that I, I absolutely adored him. I was with him for, I think it was 11 years. And um, at one point he said... Um, Either you must be very slow or I'm a very good teacher <laughs> because I kept staying with him. But the man was just absolutely remarkable. And I remember he barely gave me any compliments. So it, it was he was a tough teacher in terms of that. Um, but because I adored him so much, I was really striving for that one golden moment of him saying, you know, well done. And in fact, he did that five days prior to his death when I was already overseas. I'd come back for a concert tour and he came to listen. Um, and in fact, this was this was not the first year after I'd left him. This was a number of years after that. Um, and that was the first time that he came to me after the concert and he said, honey, you are on the right track. And five days later, he died. So that was very significant to me um, because... Because, you know, throughout the years, he was someone that was so unbelievably important to me. I trusted his judgment, and uh, therefore it was so much more meaningful. Mm -hmm. As a teacher, he was extraordinary. I think it was more about musical principles. Mm -hmm. um, so he taught me how to analyze music and mm -hmm. how to look at music, mm -hmm. not so much how to attain a specific sound quality or the technique mm -hmm. in which to achieve certain things, but the principles of what you should be looking for in music. Mm -hmm. Well, speaking of concertos, a key moment for you came in 1992 when you achieved tremendous success with performances of Beethoven's Fifth Piano Concerto in Germany. Um, and I don't think it would probably be unreasonable to list Beethoven along with Rachmaninoff as, as two of the composers whose music have become associated with you probably the most. I mean, apart from your performances of the Fifth Piano Concerto, there are also numerous exquisite performances of the Fourth and the Third Piano Concertos that come to mind. What is it about Beethoven's music and about his concerti in particular that is so special and rewarding to you as a performer? You know, Beethoven was, was really just a question of training. I, I don't think I would say that if I ever put on a CD at home, I would put on Beethoven. Um, when I started with Lamar for the first two years, uh, I was not allowed to enter any competitions or Stepfords or anything like that. It was very difficult for me as a youngster. And I was only allowed to play Beethoven. Um, because he believed, and rightfully so, that everything that I needed to learn about uh, basic musical principles I can read from uh, Beethoven's scores. And the thinking behind that was just simply that Beethoven wrote uh, absolute necessary. Mm -hmm. um, so the basic musical principles he would not, not write, for instance, he would not write a resolution uh, by way of a diminuendo. Instead, it would be blank, and it would be up to the performer to know that that is what you need to do. Mm -hmm. um, so I did do a lot of Beethoven. He, he stressed uh, uh, a lot of structured playing. Mm -hmm. uh, we also always did, as of the age of 16, I would do two concerti a year. One would be classical and the other was my choice. Mm -hmm. And Rachmaninoff was just that uh, I, I fell into it, really. Uh, we had two records at home, I remember, when we grew up. And the, the one was the Springbok Top 20. <laughs> <laughs> I know. That's those times. 
Rachmaninoff, and the other one was Rachmaninoff two, uh, coupled with Paganini Rhapsody. So my goal, as my dream, was always to play Paganini Rhapsody, which I then did in my first year after begging Lamar for months and months. And his wife, Estelle, who, who was a great character, she just turned to him and said, oh, Lamar, just let her play what she wants to play. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, the, the love affair with Rachmaninoff just really continued. Well, I guess all we really can say is thank goodness that Estelle Krausen intervened and managed to convince Lamar to allow Nina to play Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini, for we may otherwise not have had the following remarkable recording that I am now going to play to you. This recording with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Viktor Jampolsky, features a very young Nina Schumann who was a mere 20 years old at the time. Due to time constraints for tonight's program, however, I'm unfortunately only going to be able to play you section from the performance and not the entire performance, but we are going to listen to a substantial portion thereof. We'll start with variation 4 through 6, then skip on to variation 12 through 15, and then listen from variation 18 through to the end of the performance. So here, without further ado, is Nina Schumann performing The Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini and this marvellous performance from 1990.
The Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff, as performed by Nina Schumann with the Cape Town Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Viktor Jampolsky. And that was, of course, a live performance from the Cape Town City Hall, recorded on the 9th of December, 1990. After receiving your BMAS Honours degree with distinction from the College of Music um, at UCT in 1993, you had practically by that stage won every major award in South Africa, and you set your sights on the US um, and enrolled for a Master of Music program at the University of California, Los Angeles, under the tutelage of um, Vitali Margulish, who you once mentioned was not the right teacher for you, and I wanted to ask you about that and, and, and why it is so important to get that student-teacher relationship right. For both parties? Well, I think, um, you know, it's a very instinctive thing. Um, I looked quite a bit when I came upon Margulis, and and he was simply the person I chose because he was the most critical of my playing. And I think partly because Lamar was such a fantastic teacher, um, what what I was being taught needed to make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Margulis was actually in Germany at that time. I had absolutely no intention of going to the States. I, I wanted to go to Europe. Um, and at the last minute, he, after I'd made my decision, he informed me he took up a position in Los Angeles. So there I went. That's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, it's. I, I mean, I was a, a, again a complete idiot. I arrived at the airport with my two suitcases, and I'd never used a touchstone phone before in my life. <laughs> and I only had money for three days in a hotel, and then I needed to find a place to stay. So it was all roughing it uh, quite a bit. Mm. Um, but in the end, it was such an unbelievable uh, learning experience. Um, I think it was just a question of uh, maybe the way he he was relating to me. I think there was also a choice to keep a little bit more distant. Um, and I think partly because he, he was trying to use competition as a way of getting me to work more, mm-hmm. which doesn't work mm-hmm. with me. Mm-hmm. Meaning he would say, oh, this student of mine did blah, 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 blah. And I just wouldn't respond to that mm-hmm. because I was on my own mission mm-hmm. and I also didn't need any encouragement to work. I was always a very hard worker. Um, so after one year with him, I went back to South Africa and I didn't quite realize the extent to it, but I was actually quite depressed. I started having thoughts about should I even be doing music? And that's when on the invitation of Samro, I met Vladimir Viardu. Uh, who was here to give master classes um, and my frustration at that point was I felt that I had so much music musical feeling inside me and what I felt was not manifesting itself so it was a frustrating experience for me to perform and with Viardu he just showed me what I call tricks uh, in terms of sound production and uh, what you do in order to to change your color in your sound so that it really reflected what I was feeling and, mm-hmm. and to me it felt like someone hit me over the head mm-hmm. um, so that that was the kind of input that I needed at that point mm-hmm. it's interesting because you mentioned earlier with um, with Lamar he didn't so much focus on this on the actual sound production or the quality of the sound as it were Versus a Viardu, who probably, you know, that was more of an emphasis. Um, is that correct? More yes, absolutely. And I, I think the approach to teaching was also complete opposite ends of, of the spectrum. Uh, Lamar was very mm-hmm. cerebral, intellectual. Um, he would speak, um, uh, demonstrate, of course, but mostly speak. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you would have to plan and then uh, and the next step is to play. With Viado, it was quite the opposite. It was sometimes almost like he would go into a trance and he would say just magical words and 
you you go into this trance of playing for let's say about three minutes and what you produce is just extraordinary and he would then expect you to be able to analyze what just happened so it was almost like he was trying to be ahead of you in terms of feeling um, you went along with it magic was created and then I needed to analyze it which was why it was so important that uh, with um, that I had the, the training from Lamar because without that I don't think I w- would have been able to understand uh, Viadu whatsoever I mean obviously there, there were some technical things uh, that he showed me how to achieve specific sounds etc etc but most of my technical teaching really I got from my husband well, Viardu, you know, I think for those listeners out there who are not aware exactly of, of who he is, I mean, he's a phenomenal pianist, gold medalist at the 1973 Van Cliven International Piano Competition, and, and a former teaching assistant to Lev Naumov, the successor to Heinrich Neuhaus, teacher of, of Sivatoslav Richter and Emil Galils. It must be humbling for you to know that you are, in a sense, part of that pianistic legacy. Well, Viado never made me feel that way <laughs> whatsoever. He was quite sure to, to put me in my place. Now, Viado was an extraordinary character, is still an extraordinary character. For those of you who, who don't know him, I mean, the intensity of studying with him was just extraordinary. He would call me up two o'clock in the morning and say, Nina, why aren't you practicing? And because he's so scared of him, you don't say, well, because he woke me up. <laughs> you just kind of say, well... Uh, I'll practice tomorrow, Maestro, and uh, you know. So, and that was the kind of relationship that he's used to. And to a certain degree, you know, I embraced that um, because I knew that in order to get the most from him, I needed to succumb to that, uh, if that's the right word to use. Uh, also, because that was the tradition that he grew up with, and part of that was also a general um, embracing literature and art. Um, prior to starting lessons with him, he used to call me in Los Angeles every month and he would say, what are you reading? And then we would discuss it. And he gave me a, a big reading list of things. And he felt as a South African, I had a huge gap in terms of uh, traditional literature. And, and that was true. But so I started reading Japanese poetry. (laughs) (laughs) All these unbelievable things that, uh, you know, really broadened my mind. Um, And I understood what he was after, but I've never read Japanese poetry again. (laughs) (laughs) I was fortunate enough to have been in contact with Maestro Viardo earlier this week. Here's what he had to say about Nina as a student and the qualities that he admires in her as a pianist, a musician and a teacher. Well, uh, thank you for inviting me for this interview first. Uh, Second, I want to say that uh, I consider my uh, pedagogical or musicianship task as uh, almost medical reason uh, of existence. You know, Uh, I need to change people and want to change them to the best. But for doing it, I need to have material. I cannot cook wonderful dinner without wonderful components. Yes. Nina was uh, absolutely wonderful from the beginning. I met her, and uh, I believe she changed the path of her life in order to stay with me. And uh, she has uh, all sorts of natural gifts, from uh, genius sight reading. Uh, I remember she was accompanied uh, to, to some other instrumental voices, uh, music like Shostakovich and Prokofiev, right 
reading on the stage. It's a great capacity. And, of course, she has wonderful ears, and most of all, uh, she was absolutely trusting student. It really takes time for some student to trust your teacher, and uh, she did it from the very beginning. She felt that associations uh, in uh, other arts, which we try to use in a teaching, uh, are very suiting her. She would read the books I ask, and also yes. painting, for instance, and she would definitely go and look up for this, and, uh, and the processes which uh, I could uh, generate with her uh, together were in a high level because some, sometimes uh, there are talented people in my class and uh, you still have to generate the cultural level to, to get the most of it. Mm-hmm. But with Nina it was pretty easy. She's open soul, she's very sensitive and she's not only sensitive as a perceptor, she's sensitive when she uh, produces, uh, you know, but, uh, the sensitivity is very unique. Everybody is, you know, every person around is unique. Yes. Uh, but uh, lots of people cannot reveal this uniqueness to the public, to, to the music. And uh, it was easy with Nina because she was, uh, her soul was ready to produce sensitive stuff. And uh, uh, you always could say that Nina is playing, but not, but nobody else. Yes, yes. She's, her individual characteristics are very bright, and uh, I know that she was glad to come back to South Africa in order to transmit what she knows, and then already had a uh, few pupils of hers coming here for uh, continuation of the education, and uh, one of them was Esther, and she just finished the doctorate here, and it was also the joy. So she is uh, not only a musician herself, she is a wonderful pedagogue, obviously, because yes. I know her pedagogical job, and I hope it will be for uh, mutual benefits in, uh, in South Africa for a long time. Some remarkable words there from Vladimir Vihardu, gold medalist at the 1973 Van Kleiben Piano Competition and former teacher of Nina Schumann. Well, I originally planned to play to you another Rahmaninov concerto at this point in the program, and that extract will follow very shortly, I promise. But um, before that, I'd like to play you the fugue from Bach's Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue, a piece that Claudia Rao once referred to as a conversation with God. This particular recording is of a performance given by Nina Schumann and recorded by the SABC in 1993 during the second round of the SABC Music Prize.
the fugue there from Bach's Chromatic Fantasy and Fugue, as played by Nina Schumann during the second round of the SABC Music Prize, and that recording from 1993. And now for a different kind of conversation with God, in this case I think rather a prayer from the pianist to get them through the tumultuous cascade of notes and chords that is the monumental Rachmaninoff Third Piano Concerto. Well, not here, because Nina Schumann copes with the virtuoso demands that Rachmaninoff places on the pianist with exceptional skill, and in the process creates a vast canvas on which she brings her extraordinary musicality and sensitivity to bear. And so here we go. The first movement from Rachmaninoff's third piano concerto, Opus 30, recorded during the Stellenbosch International Chamber Music Festival in 2004, with the Festival Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jan Robertson.
What a remarkable performance. The first movement there from the Piano Concerto No. 3 in D minor, Opus 30 by Rachmaninoff, with, of course, Nina Schumann at the piano and the Festival Symphony Orchestra conducted by Jan Robertson. And that live recording from the Indler Hall Stellenbosch uh, that was made on the 25th of July, 2004. Well, as fact would have it, it was also during your time at Denton that you met your future husband, pianist Luis Magalesh, who was also a student of Yardo at the time. And I gather he was insistent from the start that he wanted to marry you, uh, which he did a mere six months later to the day. And I'd love you to tell us about your initial meeting with Luis and also, as far as I know, Viada's initial opposition to your relationship. Well, yes, <laughs> now you're letting the cat out of the bag completely. Um, well, Luis always says that uh, we got married because there was nothing else to do in Denton. It was so boring, um, which is, <laughs> to a certain extent, it's true. I mean, the place was just horrid. But I had some contact with uh, Luis prior to his arrival um, as Viada's kind of administrative assistant. Um, I helped Luis with getting his visa and dealing with the international office, etc. So I went to fetch him at the airport and he arrived with four suitcases with a cashmere coat and the biggest amount of perfume I'd ever encountered <laughs> with anyone. And he was just completely persistent. It was such a the type of person I'd never met before. Um, very sophisticated, even for someone who was 22 years old. And it was not something I wanted at that point. I was extremely focused. I had been practicing eight, nine hours a day. And he was someone who did crazy things. Like, I think within two months of our relationship, he said, oh, I have a concert in Germany. You're coming from South Africa. Let's meet in Amsterdam Airport. And we fly to Paris for three days. Um, just the kind of things that I'd never done. So, yes, he bowled me over completely. And he was just very, very, very persistent. And the odd thing um, in the end is that by the time we got married, I'd never heard him play. Um, so after that, when I heard him play, it was like, wow, you're not too bad, <laughs> 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 which was a pretty nice surprise. And, and shortly after that, um, we actually played together for the first time, which was a complete disaster. Um, we all at each other and we vowed never ever to play together again well you know that didn't last very long no, certainly not no. <laughs> well um, as you've just pointed out I mean Dewey became your piano duo partner he obviously became your husband the father of your two children business partner and colleague at Stellenbosch University and, and I suspect that probably for the two of you there is no real division between your private and professional lives I mean you share this mutual obsession for music um, and I think you once referred to and you said that, you know, you've got this incredible passion, both of you. Um, what ha what are some of the things that you've learned from Luis over the years? And, and I think, you know, what are the, some of the things that he's learned from you, in your opinion, um, both, you know, personally and professionally um, since you met him for that first time? That's a really good question. How am I going to answer that one? Well, you know, musically, I think we it's been a huge journey and uh, I think it would always evolve. Um, in the beginning, we quite simplistically put ourselves into little boxes and we said, well, he was the one with the incredible technique and I was the one with the musicality. Um, saying that is, of course, dangerous because it infers that he's not musical at all and I don't have any kind of technique. I read something similar where I think in an interview you said that you were sort of the classical specialist and he was the, you know, modernist romantic, you know, specialist in a sense, which, of course, is, you know, I think, again, placing labels on, you know. Completely. Yeah. And the, the odd thing is that uh, through playing together and teaching, 
uh, we've gone opposite ends of the scale. Um, in fact, in our teaching, I've become the one that's most preoccupied with technique. Uh, that has changed radically my way of teaching and he has become the one that's like, far more refined in, in terms of structure and uh, talking about the basic music, music principles so I don't know if it's a question of boredom with and, and just expanding your mind um, similarly in terms of our, our playing um, I think we've we've grown so much closer in terms of our way of playing as well um, he maybe that's just age um, to me when I first heard him play the first couple of years he had this incredible ability of genius he would play and 90% of the time he would just miss and play in a really rough unstructured manner but at the same time he had this incredible genius uh, that would just come and guts incredible guts I was the one who used to be scared on stage and make sure that everything is perfectly controlled mm -hmm. and through playing with him I've learned to relax and I've learned to experiment a little bit more and cope with the fact that sometimes you miss a note and it's okay and I think um Personally, it's a similar thing. Um, it's it's very difficult when you are in a relationship and both of us are pianists. And to a certain extent, because I was older than him when we uh, when we got married, there's a six year age difference. Um, he has always treated me as if I'm the one in a more senior position, and that has very comfortably shifted over the last couple of years. Um, where I look up to him in the most extraordinary way. I, I mean, he's my hero, and I, he's my most favorite pianist, and I think he would say the exact opposite, mm -hmm. the exact same in the opposite. Well, Luis mentioned once in an interview with Denise Racklow where he said, if you ask me whether I love music more than I love Nina, I'd have to say yes, and to which you responded, I feel the same absolutely. But somehow I suspect that with everything that has happened in the last few years, that has not really like true as it was probably a few years ago. I suspect you're right. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the thing is just that um, that was probably prior to having children. Mm -hmm. I think that's that's the major shift in in, in one's outlook on life. Inevitable. Um, we both both very obsessive people. Um, so. We're not that obsessed anymore. We try and make time for the family. Um, we're very watchful of our stress levels, I think. Um, and music is uh, is us. It's it's our life. But performing um, is one chink in the whole armor. A mutual obsession with music and also a profound partnership that Nina Schumann and Luis Magalhães enjoy, not only in their private lives but also professionally. Here they are performing the valse from the second suite for two pianos by Rachmaninoff.
The Vals there from the second suite for two pianos, Opus 17 by Rachmaninoff. Nina Schumann and Luis Magalhães in that performance, recorded in the Inlehold Salenbosch in January 2006 and released on the CD Sergei Rachmaninoff Complete Works for Two Pianos on the Two Pianists label. In 1999, at the age of 28, you left the States to accept the position of Associate Professor, Head of Piano and Artist-in-Residence at the Department of Music at Stellenbosch. And as far as I know, you're one of the youngest people ever to hold such a position at this illustrious institution. At, at that time, was that something we thought about when you, when you took up the role? Not at all. Um, I don't think I realised the significance of it whatsoever. And I can just imagine how incredibly annoying and irritating that was to my colleagues. Um, You know, I just thought this was part of life's great adventure. I would fly in with my suitcase and arrive at the conserve smoking about 20 cigarettes within the space of five minutes and thought it was all very glamorous. And... um, I think it was very difficult for my colleagues um, uh, in the initial years, and I'm sure it was also very difficult for my students. Because you were away for quite a, a few months of each year. You were either in Portugal or the States. Luis was still finishing his studies in, in the US. Um, and you basically commuted, I think, between South Africa and Portugal mostly. Yes, the the first year I was still living in the States, in Denton. So I commuted eight times that year, which was just really silly because I, I would be in Stellenbosch for two weeks and then go back to the States for three weeks and then fly back again. And um, I mean, in, in principle, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. That's, that's a pretty much a, a standard... Uh, arrangement in the States, especially for, for someone who's an artist and resident. Um, and also something I experienced with Viadri. Viadri would come uh, once a month and for a week you would have back-to-back lessons. It was all very, very intense. Um, but I think for the Stellenbosch students at that point, maybe because they were not advanced as Viadri studio, I think it must have been very, very difficult. When someone comes to says to you, you know, they'd like to audition to be a part of your studio. What are the qualities that you that you look for in in young pianists that you know, you know, might make it in this industry or would make a good pianist? Well, I think firstly eagerness to learn. That's uh, that's really important. Um, uh, you can't work with anyone that's stubborn. As simple as that. I, I'm not saying that every student needs to be compliant, but they need to be an urge to want to improve. Uh, that's crucial. Uh, because if you have that, that's uh, the, the best material you could possibly have. Um, then, of course, you know, it's focus, because being a pianist, you've got to spend a lot of time by yourself uh, in a practice room, and you've got to be able to cope with that kind of lifestyle. And then I think, lastly, personality. And there I've, I've had students with completely varying personalities, some very quirky, um, and others just just really sweet and respectful. I I, I go by instinct uh, most of the time. I mm-hmm. by now I think I have the experience to know when it's someone that's that's going to fit me and mm-hmm. vice versa. Looking back, you have been giving a lot of yourself. You have done an incredible amount for students, not only at Stellenbosch but from across South Africa, whether it is through the Chamber Music Festival, which you instituted in 2004, the Rachmaninoff Festival, the various symposia that you arranged um, at the Department of Music at Stellenbosch. I mean, these are just you know a few examples of the things that you had actually you know brought to life. Why why is that giving back so important? I think because the need to receive is so big. Um, in this country, um, you know, every time that we have international artists out to Stellenbosch with a piano symposium with a Chinese music festival, they always remark uh, on the fact that the South African students are so open and so eager to receive 
um, any form of uh, education. Um, and I think it's a, I, I, I was almost cynical about it in, in terms of my experience at Stellenbosch initially. It felt like whatever I said was something new. Um, well, you certainly didn't have an easy as well. I think, you know, there was initially a lot of opposition. Sure. Uh, but, you know, to some degree, even, even for instance, performance classes, uh, I'd never had that at Stellenbosch prior to my arrival. It's, and that's such an obvious thing. You have it at any other university worldwide, but I just simply didn't have it. So whenever I said, well, let's try and do this, it was new and innovative. Mm. Uh, so it made me look really good. I, I don't think I was really doing that much that that was so unusually new. But to answer your question, I think I feed off energy and enthusiasm of other people. Um, I like things to be well structured, um, well organized, and when an event comes off, I feed off audience members saying oh, that was great, and especially participants saying that changed my life. Um, to this day, every time after the Chinese Music Festival, I feed off the emails that I receive, because then you know you're really doing something good. And hopefully that will continue for a long time. Back to Beethoven now and a stunning performance of the third movement from the Piano Concerto Number no. 3, Opus 37. This performance was recorded in the Cape Town City Hall with the Cape Philharmonic Orchestra, conducted by Theodore Kuchar.
movement from the Piano Concerto Number no. 3, Opus 37 by Beethoven in that live performance recorded on the 27th of August 2009 in the Cape Town City Hall. And Theodore Kuchar there was the conductor of the Cape Philharmonic Orchestra. The first of your children, San Antonio, was born in 2007 and then in 2009 a girl, Leah. What surprises has this incredible gift brought to your life? Sure. <laughs> you have the best questions. <laughs> well, you know, to say the honest truth with with Antonio, I think it was such a shock. It took me months to realize what had just happened. Um, I couldn't understand why this, that I couldn't practice at night anymore. I, I, I mean, that thought just doesn't cross your mind whatsoever. And it's just amazing to have this little figure, you know, climb into bed with you and hug you and tell you, Mommy, I love you so much. He tells me every single day. I mean, it's just amazing. The the, the same thing with Leah and their the differences in personality and just this incredible joy that they give you. In 2008, you and Louise started your own record label, Two Pianist Records, and shortly thereafter also your own artist management company. And since then, you've released several albums with foremost international musicians that have garnered rave reviews and several international awards, including the much sought after German Record Critics Award and also formal recognition from the French classical music magazine, the Affasson, and also then several Grammy nominations. What prompted you to start Two Pianists? What is what is the the drive behind the record label? Um, again, circumstance. Uh, with our first recording, uh, we had signed a contract with Universal, uh, the big monster. And we got the funding for the CD, and that was the double disc, the Rachmaninoff disc. Um, and we got incredibly good reviews, and we realized what a difference that could make in our careers, because uh, without international management, which we hadn't had at that point, uh, we were kind of bound to invitations or connections, etc. And now with having this in our portfolio all these good reviews it, it just some people took notice of that but at the same time we realized that um universal they were not very good in terms of marketing and they were absolutely useless at stocking shops so in portugal for instance we sold out i think within two months and it took them another six months after several emails to get them to actually supply the stores again and typical us we just simply thought well we can actually do this better um, which is what we did. And the second, uh, our second disc, we recorded under the Two Pianists label. We thought we were being funny <laughs> or clever <laughs> by naming it Two Pianists. And then came along during the same period, we recorded Daniel Rowland with a Camerata. 
and all three CDs got incredible reviews. And on the basis of that, Luis, always the opportunist, uh, simply contacted Naxos. And we were floored, like you wouldn't believe, when a letter came back to say, yes, uh, they'd like to sign a contract with us. On the basis of three recordings, that's extraordinary. Mm, absolutely. But there's also an artistic element to, I think, the decision to create your own company where you're giving artists a platform to create recordings of, of, of repertoire where they have a very significant input rather than being governed by the commercial needs of, of large record labels. Yeah, no, absolutely. I actually forgot to mention that. that. That was kind of the nail in the coffin with Universal because uh, in order to appease us, I think they said, well, they'd like to do another recording with us, but would we mind playing all Zanaka's works? <laughs> like, no, uh, thanks. No. <laughs> Um, so, I, I, yes, absolutely. We, firstly, we believe in exceptional quality. It's um, quality on all levels. Um, the sound has to be fantastic. Naturally, the musicians have to be fantastic. Uh, we take great care over the packaging and the design. It's beautifully uh, designed. It's thank absolutely, you. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, and uh, sometimes we pay a lot more for that, but that's simply just some, something that's non-negotiable. And at the same time, we believe that uh, with the artist having the freedom to record whatever they want to do, they'll be a lot happier in the recording studio. Um, and also, of course, we use the facilities uh, in Stellenbosch and in the hall, and all the artists just adore it. So they do come, have to fly out to South Africa to come and record here uh, at present. Um, and they just love it. It feels like a holiday, and they're completely isolated, and all they do is just put their music on onto disc. Well, it certainly seems as though it's been working, which is fantastic, and we look forward to many more releases on the label. Yes, there's a, a lot coming up. One of the artists represented on Two Pianist Records is South African mezzo-soprano Michelle Briet, who is currently singing the roles of Brangena in Tristan und Isolde and also Venus in Tannhäuser at the Festspiele in Bayreuth. I managed to catch up with her in between performances in Bayreuth, and here is what she had to say about her experiences of working with Nina Schumann. So two years ago, I had the first time with Nina Schumann music made. And this was when we had our first CD, Shakespeare Inspired, for Two Penis Records. I had Nina better known in our same music made. I had her known as a outstanding musicist and an outstanding lead begeleidster. Iemand wat spontaan kon reageer, flexibel kon reageer in die moment iemand wat die nuance en die menselijke stem kon volg. En dit is een begaving wat rechtervaar die verschil maakt van iemand wat iemand net begelei op die klavier en iemand wat jouw ewe, jouw partner is en die muziek maak van die zogenaamde kleinkunst. En dit is uh, een van die wonderlijke dingen wat de mens als zanger niet nie voor genoeg uh, kan dankie sê of, of uh, voor kan wens nie, is om iemand te hee wat jou ewe is op die, op die podium saam met jou daar en wat saam met jou muziek in die moment kan maken, magic te kan maken. Dat is baie mense wat jou kan volg op een klavier en zo so aan, maar wat rarig waar, dat je iets speciaals kan bijbrengen is rarig waar iets besonders. Ik het Nina leer ken als iemand met de heerlijke zin van humor. Ik het Nina leer ken als iemand wat ongelooflijk sterk is. Een vrouw wat weet wat zij wil hee, 
wat niet bang is om die bolberry hoorings aan te pakken, nie. iemand wat niet zomaar net nie als eerste antwoord aanvaar nie, iemand wat ongelooflik hard werk voor die visies wat zij het. Met Nina's visies, haar visie om uh, kamermuziek vies op die been te brengen van internationale standaard, het zij met vliegende vaandels behaal. Die organisatie daaraan verbonden, de geld en samel, uh, is iets ongelooflijks. En ik denk, uh, mensen kan niet dankie genoeg zijn voor haar visie, wat zij um, laat waar wordt dit niet. Voor die wonderlijke uren van luistergenoot, wat die Zuid-Afrikaanse gehoor kan hebben om kamermissie op uh, hoogste vlak te kan beleven. Uh, dit neem speciale mensen wat dingen kan zien, wat anderen niet raak zien nie, en wat dingen laat gebeur. Om die moed te hee om een visie, zoals ik gezegd, iets wat nog niet daar is, raak te zien en te zeggen: dit ga ik laten gebeuren. Ik wens Nina alles, alles wat mooi is, sterkte en ik zie ongelooflijk daarna uit om weer binnenkort met haar muziek te maken. Ons tweede CD van Schubert Liede zal een van die daar op die mark wees. En ik um, kan het zeggen, ik is een uh, dankbare persoon en een verrijkter persoon, uh, die dat ik Nina leer ken het en ongelooflijk bevoorrecht om met haar samen muziek te kan maken. streets today, sit up and you won't start to play, and away, 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 on the tide of his music, we started, on every side, doors and windows were open wide, and when they found they were candy, and women with petticoats colored lights, Michelle Breit there singing A Piper by Michael Head, accompanied, of course, by Nina Schumann. And this was recorded in November 2010 in the Endler Hall Stellenbosch and released on two pianists' records as part of the disc Shakespeare Inspired. A few months ago, you were diagnosed with breast cancer, um, something which you dealt with very publicly. And despite the seriousness of your diagnosis, with immense strength and also with humour. And I have to say, it's absolutely so wonderful seeing you so amazing as you are at the moment you've you know made it through this ordeal it's obviously something where you seriously start to reevaluate things and and relook your life and and you mentioned earlier that you know you've 
also developed as a person. The focus has shifted. There's been a lot in your life that has happened in the last few years where you've said, well, you know, your dedication was always with your students or with your, your playing. Necessity at the moment is that it's moved on to focus on your children, on yourself, on your relationship. There are other things in life as well, which obviously, you know, fulfill your life. How has this whole experience affected you? Because you've also, what I find so amazing, again, getting back to this giving, which I think is so part of your personality, you've also become an advocate of sorts for um, the Mama Print Test, for other women who have breast cancer, and then also for medical gap cover in South Africa. Well, you know, for me it was quite simple. I, it was a simple choice. Um, because I'm a public figure, uh, such, um, people are born to talk very quickly and that has happened to me in the past um, with very damaging uh, effects and in fact it happened again uh, in this case a couple of days after I was released from hospital a hospital a story appeared in the burger that was um, you know they called up Luis and he begged them he said please don't publish anything this is a private matter and they went ahead and published anyway not having proper facts at all in fact according to them I was still in hospital at that point so uh, that made it quite easy for me to, to think, well, uh, you know, let me put my story in, in uh, uh, publicly and then at least I can uh, contain the information. But even as of the point of diagnosis, within 24 hours, I'd notified all my students because I was quite quite scared and petrified that they would find out from anyone else and be concerned. And the same with all my colleagues. Um, and yes, I am in a position where I can be an advocate um, if it helps one person, then uh, it's uh, it's a goal achieved. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of how it's changed my life, uh, it's such a sudden change. I mean, it's extraordinary. From the moment of diagnosis to the operation, I think, was five weeks. Um, a very difficult period in that five weeks because you don't... There's so much that you don't know, um, and it's constantly conjecture. You don't know how far the cancer has been. You know, the doctors can tell you one thing, they can give you one prognosis, and the, and the next minute they just floor you with something completely different. Mm-hmm. I mean, for instance, I didn't expect to have a mastectomy done. I expected them to simply cut out the growth and reconstruct the breast. They didn't give me an option. They said, we have to remove it. And uh, with the result that in that meeting I asked and said, well, what's the odds of having cancer in the other breast? They said 25%. And right there, I opted to have the second one removed as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yes, very dramatic changes. Um, But in the end, it was very positive. Um, My relationship with Luis, if it's even possible, it's even stronger than before. Um, He has been an unbelievable support. I mean, geez, his husband, anyone wants. Um, And I've become more selfish. I I really watch my stress levels uh, very carefully. I don't get involved with things that I don't, isn't is not essential. So, for instance, some of my administrative headships uh, within the department, I've passed that on. It's not stuff that, that I really cared for anyway. Um, so that's positive. And in the end, what defines me as a person is not only being a mother and a wife, but um, also being a musician. Mm-hmm. And that means not administering. Mm-hmm. Uh, it also means not necessarily giving the same amount of focus mm-hmm. to teaching. It means playing. Mm-hmm. That's what defines me. Mm-hmm. And it was a, quite an amazing realization. This morning I was sitting, I was practicing, and I was thinking, what would I really like to learn? 
you know, so that's the kind of thoughts that you can have. I, I have this uh, luxury now of thinking possibly, uh, I mean, I'm not going to die. I, I had an excellent prognosis, uh, but you have a sense of inevitable death at some point, even mm. if it's going to come in 40 years' time. What would I like to do before then? Yes, I'd like to learn Scriven Piano Concerto. You know, so it's it's with pleasure that, that you experience this. So I, I'm, I'm in a very good space. That's so good to hear. You mentioned Skria Benal. I mean, what does the future hold for you within the next few years, do you think? I mean, what are some of the projects, the pieces, the things that you'd like to do? I know there's some very exciting concerts that are coming up in 2013, I believe it is. What do you foresee yourself doing in the next few years? Highlights that you'd like to tackle? Um, you know what, I'm, I'm taking it really easy at the moment, uh, partly because um, I've only really started playing again now. Um, long term, yes, very exciting. I have Wigmore Hall recital with Michelle Briet coming up in December next year, and then the Schubert Theater in Spain, and then three months later or two months later, February 2013, we're uh, doing Tornhalle. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, no, it's I, I. I mean, this is really incredible. And the funny thing is, I heard all this news when I was in the hospital, <laughs> and I hardly reacted uh, at all. And as Louis said, morphine is a wonderful thing. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, yes, and, uh, you know, I, I still uh, want to do the normal, which is, uh, besides all the time music stuff uh, that we do and all the two piano concerts that we do, also to learn one solo recital every year, to at least learn one new concerto every year. It's consistency mm-hmm. uh, to do the same that I've always done, mm-hmm. but just mm-hmm. take it to a new level. Well, we wish you many more decades of health and happiness and I think lots of love in your life. And, um, and yeah, thank you so much for giving of your time and, and, and giving us a bit of a glimpse behind Nina Schumann. Thank you, Adrian. You've turned out okay. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't resist that one. <laughs> well, I warned you that you're going to be getting a full dose of Rachmaninoff tonight. And to end of tonight's program, I'd like to play you the third movement from a very special performance of Rachmaninoff's Second Piano Concerto given on the 16th of July 1994 in the Cape Town City Hall with Omri Hadari conducting the South African National Youth Orchestra prior to their participation in the Aberdeen International Youth Festival in Scotland. This particular recording has been transferred from a tape cassette and is one of the very few, if not the only surviving copy of this remarkable performance and as such, the sound is not great, but um, I still feel that a, that a program about Nina would not be complete without playing this remarkable performance to you. Before I bid you farewell, however, um, I'd also just like to say a special thank you to a number of people who have, over the course of the last few weeks, assisted me in sourcing some of the marvellous recordings we've heard during tonight's program. In particular, Louis Heinemann and Daniel Neal from the Cape Philharmonic Orchestra, Shirley de Kock-Gueller, Robert Johnson and Gillian Lindner from the College of Music at UCT, Suzette Lombard, Ida Scott and Kate Jelle from the SABC, and Louise Howlett and Hans Rosenskwin from Stellenbosch University. A special thank you as well, of course, to Maestro Vladimir Viardu and Michelle Briot, who provided me with their input for tonight's programme. Well, from me, Adrian Fuchs, that's it for another edition of Great Interpreters. I'll be back on the FMR Airwaves for four very special programmes on the iconic Maria Callas every Friday in September. That's the 7th, 14th, 21st and 28th of September at 8pm as we celebrate the anniversary of her death 35 years ago on the 16th of September 1977. I do hope you will join me as we look at the fascinating myth and legend that is La Divina. 
And so without further ado, here is Nina Schumann and the South African National Youth Orchestra with conductor Omri Hadari performing the third movement from Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto. Have a wonderful evening and good night. <laughs> 